Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good morning, Kobus, or is it good afternoon for you now? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and uh, we are uh, heading for the first time now to uh, Conway, South Carolina. Uh, Cobus, this is actually uh, twice in a month that we're in the southern United States, where we're joined by uh, Professor Richard Adu from Coastal Carolina University, and he's a professor in the political science department there. A very good morning to you, Professor Adu. Good morning. And uh, we are going to talk about three topics as usual. Uh, today we're going to stay on the western coast of Africa. First, we're going to talk about Nigeria and Good Luck Jonathan's recent uh, visit with a whole plane load of ministers and business leaders to China, uh, followed up by an article that Professor Adu wrote uh, on Angola. And this is one of the most interesting relationships that China has in Africa. And we're going to hear uh, from Professor Adu's perspective on this, particularly as it relates to uh, non-intervention and China's policy of really kind of keeping arm's length on political affairs. And finally, once again, we're going to go back to Ghana. Uh, Kobus, we've been going back and forth to Ghana now pretty much uh, since uh, for the past two or three months now. We can't seem to stay away, but there have been some developments in the past week that we want to address. So so let's get started right off the top uh, with Nigeria. You know, Kobus, I, I looked at this trip, uh, in, you know, as a real milestone trip. Uh, it came, you know, one week after President uh, Obama was in Africa, and it really highlighted in what I think is a, a dramatic pivot from uh, for, for 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 Nigeria, but also protected, potentially representative of the continent as a whole uh, from the West towards China. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know the overarching kind of perspective on the trip and what he got accomplished. Mm-hmm. Well, he, um, he uh, you know, obviously visited China. He, he met very high-level people, including uh, President Xi Jinping and Premier Li Keqiang. Um, and he got massive loans. Like, um, you know, I'm... I'm I'm, I'm seeing different numbers, but the, the, the you know kind of 1.1 billion dollars or 1.29 billion dollars. I've seen both numbers, but um, you know these in, this includes like a 500 million dollar loan for four new airports, um, and also he's getting a, a, a hydropower plant. So it's it's massive new investments, massive new loans from China, um, and you know, as you say, you know coming just just shortly after Obama's trip to uh, to Africa, where he obviously didn't visit Nigeria. It, it seems to, to indicate some kind of move towards China. So let's review a little bit of what happened. And Professor Adu, I'd like to get your take on it and see if you if you kind of echo my sentiments here. And I'm not asking for validation here, but uh, listen, back in 2005, Sino-Nigerian trade was two billion dollars. Now it's ten billion dollars this year is what the numbers are. So the, it's grown 500 percent in less than a decade. Cobus uh, talked about a 1.1 billion dollar deal for what they called Cobus four new airport terminals. So I don't know if that's actually new airports or airport terminals. And that was an interesting word that they used there. I'm not, sh- I'm not quite yeah, sure like- what that means. I saw the aviation authorities were also in Nigeria um, on the same visit, I mean also in China on the same visit, and they were looking for more investment. So, um, you know, kind of for, for other forms, for airplane maintenance and so on, so maybe they were just terminals. Well, then there's also a 700 megawatt hydropower station, and, and this was the most interesting one, the last point, was they, they also discussed a deal for Nigeria's central bank, led by none other than Sanusi uh, Lumida, uh, to invest in China's interbank bond market. And the reason why this is so interesting to me is because it shows a deepening of the relationship on a level that, you know, when President Obama was in Africa, he was, you know, really just scratching the surface. And here you're starting to see the Nigerian Central Bank, who owns part of its reserves in RMB, in the Chinese currency, uh, further integrating its financial system with that of China's. So, Professor Adu, am I overreading this in terms of seeing a fundamental shift, you know, to use the U.S. parlance, a pivot that uh, Africa's largest country is making with Asia's largest country? I think, uh, Eric, uh, the right interpretation. Uh, uh, I mean, if you look carefully at uh, Nigeria, Nigeria is known as one of uh, the largest economies uh, going along with South Africa. I mean, it makes sense that uh, China would not just look at South Africa, but then also 
uh, start very much inching towards building a very formidable relationship with uh, a country like Nigeria. Uh, the, the other aspect is you look at Nigeria and you know it's an oil economy. And uh, this relationship has very much uh, reflected the fact that uh, China is very much interested in uh, also countries that have uh, oil. Natural resources, particularly oil. We've seen that with the case of Angola, we've seen that also, uh, in Sudan, and so that rhetoric it probably plays into this. Uh, and you see that there is also this attempt to uh, build this very good relationship that uh, we have probably never known of when it comes to Nigeria and China. Uh, it's been the case that the relationship has existed uh, in time past, but now taking $1.1 billion and throwing in a couple of infrastructures is going to make this relationship uh, much deeper than we've ever known it to be. So uh, we would have to stay tuned. There's going to be much more on uh, Sino-Niger relationships. So there's going to be much more, but let me let us let me pick up the issue, Kobus, with you in terms of the concern that was raised on our Facebook page. Uh, that's at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where a number of Nigerians kind of sounded in and said, Oh, God, we're taking on more debt. You know, already Nigeria is indebted to the Europeans. And even though the loans that they're getting from China are in the 2% range, you know, that's still 2% of a billion dollars, which is a lot of interest when you add it up. Uh, A billion here, a billion there. Why, for the love of God, is a country that is so blessed in oil, but yet so cursed with disruptive politics, taking on more debt? Why couldn't uh, you know, good luck, Jonathan, finance these airports with his own uh, his own funds coming from the oil revenue, Cobus. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think it's, it, it relates to Nigerian society as a whole. I saw very interesting numbers this, this week that Angola is about to uh, surpass Nigeria as Africa's biggest oil producer, not because necessarily because Angola really produces more oil, but because so much oil in Nigeria is stolen from the pipelines that actually, so, so the amount of oil that Nigeria produces and the amount that it exports is two different numbers. And between those two numbers, it, a lot of it gets stolen. Um, you know, so I think, you know, <laughs> New numbers came out of Transparency International this, uh, recently, in the of which again put obviously Nigeria, made it clear that Nigeria is a very corrupt society. Um, and a lot of people have been saying that the good side of these Chinese deals are that Chinese deals tend to be structured. Um, that they actually deliver infrastructure. It's not like you know, kind of like you saw under Sania Bacha, for example, that a lot of the the money got paid over and then just disappeared into Swiss bank accounts. Um, or in this or in Sania Bacha's case, Swiss city bank accounts in New York. Um, you know, kind of China has mechanisms to make sure that when they give loans, these loans actually result in infrastructure. So, uh, you know, it, it might be better than it used to be, but I, I share your concern and I share the concern with other, other with Nigerians that, you know, maybe they don't really need to take on this much debt. Maybe they just need to change how the system works. Yeah, that was the point that I made on, on Facebook, which was, you know, people were saying, well, why were they taking these loans? And I said, I think it's easier for, 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 for President uh, Jonathan to, to deal with the Chinese than it is to deal with his own dysfunctional political system, which with has very deeply entrenched forces and constituencies that that he that will take generations to fix, if at all. You, you, you know, Professor Edu, what I find interesting about this is that, you know, as, as, as Nigeria goes, so goes Africa, just because it is, a fa- in fact, the largest market It's the in terms of population. Uh, but it also has one of the most vocal critics of China. And the central bank governor, Sanusi Lumida, came out uh, several months ago and, and really made one of the most articulated, uh, articulate and kind of thoughtful criticisms of China, calling it, uh, he didn't call it neo-colonial. He said it's engaging in neo-colonial behavior, uh, mm-hmm. you know, by exporting raw materials out of Africa and then re-importing uh, finished goods. Uh, and, and really that's come to define so much of the Western media's coverage of the continent. So how yeah. do you reconcile this, this tightening relationship uh, that the president is making and business leaders are making with this very, very vocal critic in the central bank? I think I think it's very interesting. This whole uh, debate on colonialism uh, is so uh, 
so huge and uh, has almost overshadowed almost the entire relationship between uh, China and that of uh, African countries. But before I even uh, talk about that, I would want to just uh, say this, that the, the fact that we've seen uh, so much resources coming from China into uh, African countries vis-a-vis uh, -vis that of what used to be in the case of World Bank, uh, very much tends to worry me a little bit in the sense that when we think about uh, what the World Bank's way of dealing with African nations, we, we used to have all these preconditions. Now, what these preconditions did was it forced most of these countries to be somehow economically disciplined. Now, you're seeing the other side of this. Now, without preconditions, without certain structurally uh, laid out rules, you have most of these uh, African countries now perceiving these resources as almost uh, what you heard from um, Mr. Udua, Stella Udua, who's saying uh, this is free money, right? So the idea that there, there are no conditions, preconditions coming with this, uh, somehow probably can easily lead most of these countries into losing that physical or economic discipline that uh, they might uh, have had under uh, resources coming from uh, uh, the World Bank and IMF. So that you would probably see uh, as a problem. Now, over, over time, we probably would also see uh, a point where most of these African countries haven't seen that uh, uh, these resources are probably easy uh, to have access to and uh, with very limited conditions will pile up uh, these debts. So we probably might be getting into what we, we refer to as economic colonialism, right? So we might not see that direct aspect of uh, uh, colonial behavior, but uh, the idea that we owe so much, ag again, going back to what uh, used to exist with the West, uh, only that in this case we have a different actor in place. This is what plays exactly into whole rhetoric of uh, the idea that China is always colonizing Africa. Yeah, but, you know, this whole colonial argument, and this is one that Kobus and I get into quite a bit with uh, some of our, our followers on Facebook, you know, colonialism was something that was imposed by the West on other countries. Uh, this was something that, you know, other countries, weaker countries, did not have the power to resist because colonialism also implied imperialism, which had a military component to it. There was force always backed up by it. You know, you yep. mentioned, for example, fiscal and economic discipline, and, and those are words that should never go in a sentence with the word Nigeria, um, <laughs> simply because Nigeria it really is the case study for the oil curse. And so you, you mix this dysfunctional political system that, you know, that siphons off oil, as Cope has pointed out, combined with the fact that these leaders are voluntarily going to China. I mean, no one put a gun to, to good luck Jonathan's head to get on a plane and fly to Beijing and take out these loans. So that's where I feel like the colonial argument comes up short. Um, how, how do you, you know, how, how do you cross the T's and dot the I's on that? Exactly, uh, Eric. That, that's the aspect that I actually uh, really disagree uh, with. Anytime I hear this whole idea on colonial, uh, Chinese colonial uh, outreach into Africa, I mean the fact is, I believe in the international system as we have now, states have the right to make decisions. Once you become independent, you have the right to behave as states behave. Formidable uh, uh, political actors in the international system. So African states now have. Uh, that uh, ability to decide. They have governments who act on their behalf. They have citizens that uh, play the role of uh, 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 making sure that their needs uh, are probably taken care of as uh, they go through the political uh, process. Uh, so it's very almost, I, I believe it's almost a minimalist argument to just uh, define this whole relationship as, uh, uh, as uh, colonial or colonialism in the sense that what it does is it almost trivializes the role of uh, the African state and the ability that the African state has to make the choices uh, for its own people and, and safeguard their interests. So it, it belittles the argument a little bit. I mean, we tend to do that because uh, you have most uh, supporters, especially in the West, do that because uh, there is this uh, imprint of colonial rule that still hangs over uh, the African continent. But... I think there is no, for me, as, uh, as an individual, there's no justification that these African states are so important that they cannot 
act on their own. They can make decisions, they can make choices, they, they have uh, their economic plans, they have their political agenda, they have all that laid out. And I, I believe that's what uh, uh, should be the case. It, it shouldn't be that in this current age, uh, a state is so important that it can be driven into oblivion uh, by uh, the agenda of uh, other states, just like in this case. Yeah. You know, Cobus, one of the other kind of looming factors in all of this, and we, we talked about the pivot at the top of the show, is this idea that, you know, if I was sitting in Abuja right now and I was watching the news coming from the United States about, you know, the fact that in within 10 years, the United States will become the largest energy producer in the world. Uh, and that means that, you know, the United States will not be, you know, importing oil from, from Nigeria as much anymore. So if you're a, a Nigerian, you know, oil, you know, planner and policymaker, you're going to look to the future and say, well, we got to find a new market for our goods here. So the geopolitics of America's shale uh, oil boom seems like it's playing out in this dynamic, and, and it only makes sense for, for, for Nigeria to shift its attention to, uh, to, 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 to China. Uh, and then from the Chinese point of view, they look at you know, Nigeria as in some ways the perfect partner because they can pull out oil, but it also has a large domestic market, unlike Sudan, unlike Angola, where they can then sell products, finished or otherwise, back into Nigeria. So when we look at the pivot, um, do you look at Nigeria to be as important as I do, or do you look at it in some ways as being a dysfunctional basket case of a country that really will serve primarily as an oil source for, for China? Well, I think the issue with the oil, I mean, you know, China is apparently also pursuing shale gas and shale oil. Um, so there's already been um, opinions coming out of the, the Nigerian oil ministry saying that they need to focus in the future on the African market for their oil because the Chinese market, Chinese demand might not last that long. Um, in terms of the wider issue, I think, you know, I think it's, Nigeria is so big um, that it's possible to be both very important and a basket case. Um, and you know that that is the, the kind of the complication of a country like Nigeria in in, in Africa. Um, the issue, you know, as you mentioned, Nigeria is a massive market, um, and it's it's a savvy. Um, you know, consumerist market as well. Um, and one of the biggest issues, you know, between China and Nigeria has been the old issue of, of the quality of Chinese goods um, to such an extent that uh, the, ambassador, the Chinese ambassador to Nigeria actually addressed that directly, um, you know, kind of, and, and interestingly put some of the blame on African importers saying that they, they, they are pushing for such, for such low prices that they only get the cheapest stuff from China, they don't import the goods. It was an interesting kind of thing way well, to to put it. There, there's a point to that. Uh, one other kind of final point to make on this is that the two countries, you know, this probably did not come up, but I think it's worth mentioning, uh, can bond when it comes to Muslim extremism as well. So China, in its far west right now, is dealing with uh, with a surge of violence related to uh, to its Muslim provinces in Xinjiang. Uh, and, of course, this is an issue with Boko Haram in the north as well. So, you know, there's some similarities probably in some bonding that they might be able to do on that front as well. You know, this is one of the most popular topics that we have on our Facebook page, and we're inviting everybody to join the discussion, uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, yeah. We're upwards now of 86,000 uh, followers. So, Professor Adu, we've got a couple professors around the world, particularly in Botswana and South Africa, who have made our Facebook page part of their course. So uh, this is our, our, our very subtle way of marketing our Facebook page, if you uh, <laughs> assign your students to follow our, our, our page. But it is a great way, in part because... Yeah, the vast majority of the people on our page are young Africans between the ages of 18 to 24. So you get an opportunity to really hear these voices that you won't hear uh, anywhere else. Uh, let's move yeah, on now. I'll consider that. Yes, yeah, so that would be great. Extra credit for, for following our Facebook page. <laughs> um, let's move on to our second topic now. And uh, we're going to go right to, uh, to Professor Adu's uh, piece that he wrote on June 20th uh, on foreignpolicyjournal.com. Uh, and it's titled China and Angola, the True Dynamic Duo in Sino-African relations, and it's really a glowing piece in terms of what China is doing in Angola. Uh, let me first read a couple statistics that you mentioned in your piece, and then I want you to kind of put these statistics in the broader context of the Sino-Angolan relationship. 
Uh, Angola, you know, we talked about dysfunctional countries, and, and Angola in some ways is, is a case study as well. Uh, president yeah. Jose Eduardo dos Santos has been president since 1979. That's 34 years of consecutive rule. So he must love the, the China non-intervention policy. Uh, now, what's interesting here is that Transparency International ranks Angola as one of the most corrupt countries in the world, 157 out of 176 uh, on its Corruption Perceptions Index. On the United Nations Development Program's Human Development Index, it's 148 out of 186, so it's really towards the bottom. Life expectancy in Angola is just 50 years old, and right across the border in Namibia, it's 62 years old. So we're talking just a short drive across the border, and you gain 10 years on your life expectancy. Nonetheless... Uh, Angola has been the beneficiary of billions and billions of dollars of Chinese oil purchases and infrastructure deals. Nonetheless, you call this the dynamic duo. Um, it, it's a pretty sad case in Angola. Why do you, uh, why do you come off with such an optimistic uh, tone, on, at least in the title of your piece? Yeah, I, I, I think the idea here is that uh, there's been so many changes. There's, there's been so many tens and twists in this relationship. Uh, there are parts that uh, I, I totally agree. There are parts that might uh, sound almost uh, uh, very dim. And then there are other parts that somehow give us a, a light. So what I try is I try to juxtapose both the positives uh, and the negatives. And as you can clearly see, uh, most uh, of most often we argue that China as an actor comes into these African countries and offers other options uh, to the path uh, of development. But as you can see, uh, there are case studies, case studies that we have all around uh, the continent that very much prove that in spite of uh, China as an actor coming in, uh, there is also the agency of the African states. The, the importance of the African state uh, playing a role in shaping its own economic destiny. So you can clearly tell that in the case of Angola, uh, there's been parts, uh, especially as I did uh, argue, uh, getting infrastructure in place, I mean, which probably would have been very difficult given the fact that Dos Santos probably had a, hold, uh, a tight hold on economic resources uh, with its uh, with its colonies uh, it, it, it's very much somehow relieving and you see this time uh, time and again in most African countries the attempts to put infrastructure in place in spite of the fact that you have the elites also uh, uh, squeezing uh, these resources and using them for themselves so there are good sides of the story uh, but at the same time there are uh, bad aspects I, I look forward to seeing this whole thing end up being something that is overall positive. Uh, but nonetheless, it's still going through a process of, of lots of changes. Uh, it's also uh, an oil economy, so uh, its uh, its advantages are very obvious. I mean, the fact that uh, it's able to uh, draw investors from all over the world, and particularly as you can see in this case, uh, China is very much playing a very major role in this because of the oil that they have. So they all give them leverage, uh, but also it comes with all these other evils that we know oil economies sometimes have to uh, deal with. You know, Cobus, we, we often talk about governance and we often hear about the frustrations that a lot of Africans have with the Chinese uh, in their behavior in Africa. And Angola, to me, represents uh, a, an example of, you know, where is the moral outrage about, you know, the Dos Santos government? That this is a, this is a country that now has the most expensive city in the world in terms of cost of living in Luanda. Uh, real estate there is just crazy. Um, again, the oil economy is putting billions of dollars into the Swiss bank accounts of the leadership. Um, you know, the, the human suffering there is unimaginable. Uh, and yet we still focus so much attention on the Chinese when, in fact, it's the African governance or the Angolan governance in this case um, that, to me, is outrageous because that money is not trickling down. If the Chinese did not insist, as you talked about, how to prevent the money from going into the pockets of uh, of, of corrupt leaders by building the infrastructure themselves directly, using their own labor in some cases, uh, the the infrastructure wouldn't get built because it would probably just be corrupted away. So I, I just, for me, it's like this is this is a great example of the, the lack of moral outrage at the Dos Santos government. 
Yeah, I think, you know, kind of as someone who grew up in Southern Africa, Angola's always been insane. You know, kind of it's always been a crazy place. Um, so I think in terms of where the moral outrage is, I think we, we're... It's, it's been used up. You know, kind of we, we have moral outrage fatigue, I think, where it comes to Angola. Um, you know, and it's, it's always been crazy in my other reasons because, obviously, of, because of South African involvement, uh, you know, during the past era. Um, you know, yeah, I, you know, one of, the, one of the weird things for me, and I actually like to ask Professor Edu about this as well, is uh, while the Chinese are so heavily invested in Angola, um, Angola generally is seen as a pretty horrible place to do business. It's not, not only because it's so so corrupt, but also because um, it's so difficult to, to get into and so hostile to foreigners. So I've, I've heard lots of different people, including academic researchers, who say that they've kind of given up on working on Angola because it's so hard to go to. Um, it's almost impossible to get a visa. Um, and, you know, kind of once you're there, you get shaken down by the police. It's, you, you face lots, lots of troubles. So, you know, kind of it's just... And at the same time, you know, you have a, a, an economy that's completely warped by basically the presidential family, where a whole bunch of the biggest companies are owned literally by relatives of of the president. So, um, you know, kind of how I actually just wanted to ask both of your opinion is how how do the Chinese actually do business there? It's, it seems so unsustainable to me. Yeah, I I think it's very interesting if you look at the case of uh, Angola. I mean, most Western companies that would want to invest in Angola would have to be dealing with uh, a Lusophone uh, country. We have the Anglophones, the Francophones, and then it's a Lusophone uh, country. So you you have most of these Western companies being largely comfortable with Anglophone countries, largely uh, uh, embracing uh, with the Francophone countries as well. So. For the Lusophone countries, we just have a few of them on the African continent. Most uh, Western companies and most uh, other investors are a little bit uh, cautious because they don't understand sometimes the legal arrangements. There are, uh, of course, language barriers, which uh, China, some, in most cases, uh, we have come to learn very much sidelines and, and moves on. So you you uh, you end up seeing a system that is almost, uh, for most Westerners, the, the traditional investors, that looks almost uh, uh, unfriendly to them. And it takes a, a while for them to understand most of these arrangements. And then coupled with the fact that most of the reports that we have heard about Angola is not necessarily being that which is very tasteful uh, in uh, the Western, Western media and all over. You've had a country that is seen so much a war, uh, and I will bet that for most people uh, out in the West, they probably still think there's some amount of conflict going on in Angola. So uh, there is very little uh, uh, positive news that we have had so much out here uh, uh, about Angola. And then uh, coupled with the fact that the arrangements, are the, the legal arrangements, the, uh, the investment, um, um, climate and the environment that's, that's been very much created uh, by a government that's been, been in power for a very long period of time is hitherto uh, unknown, largely unknown by the outside world. So that makes it a little bit uh, difficult for us to be hearing so much and uh, having a system that is as open as you might find in Anglophone and other Francophone African countries. Yeah, but let's not forget, Professor Adu, that China itself, and most people don't realize this, is actually part of the Lusophone world. Uh, you know, yeah, thanks to Macau. Thanks to Macau. And, and in part because of Macau, that is, you know, was a former Portuguese colony that in 1999 was, yeah. was returned back to, to China. There actually is, uh, there, there's Lusophone training schools. There, uh, they still have preserved the language to some degree, although it's dying. Uh, but there is a connection to Portuguese culture, uh, that you don't have, say, for example, in the United States or outside of Portugal. So in some ways, you know, there is a, a little bit of a, of a linkage that's there. Professor, let me uh, let me read a quote from your from your article, and 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 this this is where I kind of shook my head a little bit on your on your on your piece. You said, "quote uh-huh. uh, China's relations with Angola demonstrate a new dimension of harnessing resources to benefit the African masses." And and again, I at the top of this segment, I quoted the the the, the dreadful statistics that 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 confront most most non elites in uh, or all of the non elites in in, in in Angola. Um, it doesn't seem like Angola is an example of how the resources are benefiting the masses. How do you defend that statement? 
I again I I made this as statement uh, looking at the overall and comparatively to what used to be uh, uh, in 80s and the 90s and we've known uh, this is going on for a long period of time it still uh, goes on you have the elites uh, still having their hands in the cookie jar so it's still something that's going on but what we see now is there's a gradual shift uh, in the idea that resources solely go to benefit uh, just the elite and those in power, right? For a long period of time, we've had billions and billions of dollars just being used up by uh, those in power and their families. Now, when I travel around places in Africa, I see an attempt somehow, even if uh, it's not that much, and I can still say that much more should be done, right? But uh, you still see roads being built. You still see hospitals in place. You see attempts to put, they might not be uh, to the standard or to uh, uh, the point where most of these uh, masses uh, probably want, but at least what I see is there is this attempt, there's this shift uh, in, uh, in using these resources to help uh, masses instead of just pocketing these resources and truly these resources would have been pocketed if uh, not going into some form of infrastructure uh, loan agreement that is bringing these resources to the people. So my uh, my my idea behind making that statement is that gradual shift, that moving towards uh, a new era where we're seeing uh, African resources somehow uh, uh, leading into dealing with issues that uh, Africans will probably uh, say that has never been touched at all. I mean, there's been road uh, uh, networks that's been broken down, infrastructure, no power, and we just recently saw an attempt by uh, President Obama to invest in uh, power in Africa. So all these uh, attempts, I believe, uh, that is changing the rhetoric, is is moving towards a rhetoric where we talk about resources being used uh, for African needs rather than just going directly to the pockets of uh, these elites. Well, let's talk about the infrastructure in Angola. Last year, the BBC uh, did a whole series of reports uh, where they highlighted, in particular in Angola, uh, the fact that you know the Chinese were building hospitals that were so poorly built and constructed they couldn't even open. Cracks were were forming. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's, of course, the you know you talked about in the eyes of the West what the perception of Angola is, and uh, in war, I, I would actually contend that this story about the these ghost towns in Nova Cidade de Calambe, I probably said that poorly, but uh, you know the, the massive ghost towns that are being built um, mm-hmm. are are really representative of this dysfunctional policy of who's controlling the show, what is behind th- these massive constructions and this poor construction that's going on to to the point where it just doesn't make any sense to anybody in the outside world. Yeah, there, there's obviously some amount of politics involved uh, in uh, these resources, political propaganda, right? So uh, the MPLA government will probably would want to get some sort of uh, uh, credit for putting some of these resources, as you probably would see with most uh, some African governments, right? Who would want to get some credit for having uh, uh, the, the Chinese come in and put these uh, infrastructure there? So you might pick out a couple of them that uh, would maybe scratch your head. Uh, but uh, by and large, I also see uh, some of these uh, uh, infrastructure uh, also going to serve the needs of the people. Now, granted, some of these uh, infrastructure might be shortly built. Now, my my question has always been, would you want a shortly built hospital in something for rural area? Uh, that is somehow gradually helping people. I mean, granted that taking that, it probably would be, it can uh, be improved uh, or have nothing at all, right? So it's somehow uh, helping start off this whole process of putting some of these structures in place, and then later on we can just uh, uh, see some of these uh, attempts to improve these infrastructure. I mean, I think this is uh, not directly saying that everything uh, that they put up is well-built or uh, solidly uh, placed, but somehow uh, it is a start. I, I, I prefer that 
to not having uh, put these infrastructure in place at all. You know, Cobus, uh, this poorly built infrastructure really gives a rallying point for critics in China, uh, of critics of China in Africa. You know, we talked a couple years ago to Kabwena in uh, in Ghana, who mentioned the fact that you know, months after the Chinese road was built in Ghana, it, it starts to fall apart and the earth starts to take it over again. You know, what's your thought on what Professor Adu is saying in terms of you know, is crappy infrastructure better than no infrastructure, um, or? You know, or should the, should should Africans kind of be be content with what they get? Um, you know, it's such a difficult question. Obviously, good infrastructure is better than anything. However, in the case of Angola, you're looking at a situation not only where everything, almost everything, was destroyed by civil war that went on for a long time, and by proxy Cold War, proxy war that that went on before that. Um, keep in mind that you know, kind of that in the 70s, um, South Africa, backed by the U.S., um, you know, kind of advanced. To, to take over almost the entire uh, almost entire Angola, um, you know, and and there were guerrilla movements being funded by by China, being funded by the by the Soviets, and before that you had 500 years of, of Portuguese colonialism, which was you know which is frequently seen, maybe except for the Belgians in the Congo, as some of the most rapacious and least building, least constructing of, of colonialisms in Africa. So, you know, Angola started from really nothing. So I tend to, you know, it's, it's a difficult, it's, you know, obviously everyone needs good hospitals. Um, but I tend to agree a little bit that probably a crack hospital is better than a hospital. Maybe. It's, it's a sad thing to say, but I, I think I agree maybe. Well, I'm, I'll close this segment with a, with a comment uh, of my own to say that I am more impressed with the Chinese in Angola, not necessarily because of the infrastructure, but because of what they're doing in the demining uh, area. That is, the, the, Angola was one of the most, during the Civil War, was one of the most heavily mined countrysides anywhere in the world. And the United States and the West and the, and the aid industry held hostage the demining of the countryside for political reform. Dos Santos refused to make political concessions, and what ended up happening is the mine stayed in the countryside uh, to the point where it was a chronic problem, uh, you know, just tragic how children and, and villagers and people who, and peasants who would just walk, you know, walk through their, their backyards would, would have limbs blown off. And the Chinese came in, again, this is part of their non-intervention policy, and said, listen, we're not going to make any demands on you politically, but we will demine part of your countryside. And to me, that was really one of the greatest contributions that China's done in Africa. Uh, and it's something that's not really well reported, uh, but it's very important. So when we talk about the contribution that Chinese are making to the, to the little guy, uh, there is no better example than their demining efforts in, in, the, in Angola. So, and, and that, in some yeah. ways, is one of the examples of how you know, building a road combined with demining allows for economic activity to happen. The Angolans used to import bananas from Brazil because they couldn't get bananas from the Angolan countryside. So by putting a road in and demining, now you're, you're creating an opportunity for economic activity to occur from the Angolan countryside into Luanda. And it's really – so I think there are some – I agree with you, Professor, that there are some really interesting and dynamic uh, things that are happening there. Um, I also think there's a lot of reason for concern as well that Angola follows Nigeria to be a kleptocracy and just pocket all of this, this money. When you look down the road five, ten years into the Sino-Angolan relationship – do you see one where the money coming into Angola is actually creating uh, a political space that is more dynamic, that a civil society does emerge, or do we look to a future where um, it's more or less like it is today? I, I think I'm more hopeful uh, in a post-Dos uh, Santos uh, uh, era. If we get to a phase where Dos uh, Santos and the MPLE steps out of power, having been in power so long, I am looking forward to having a more open Angola where the environment would be much more competitive, a very competitive environment will be created, given the fact that they have uh, so much oil and they're still uh, uh, getting more. I mean, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, you had uh, Sino, Sinopec uh, taking up the marathon uh, uh, share uh, in one of the oil concessions that is going to bring in more money it's uh, how much 
of this money is going to be put into development and, and how well is the environment, uh, economic environment going to remain sustainable to this path uh, that they take. I, I am more hopeful and I want to see 10 years down the line, uh, hopefully I know uh, some political change is going to happen. And so once that takes place, I, I hope that uh, Angola has probably all become uh, part of the process uh, in deciding where these resources go. I, I'm pretty hopeful on that. Well, uh, a hopeful uh, note to end that conversation on. Cobus, we usually don't end on hopeful notes, so I think that's, uh, that's a nice <laughs> change for, uh, for the past. Uh, let's move on to our final topic, which is, of course, we're going to Professor Edu's uh, native country of Ghana. Uh, we've been going back and forth to yes. Ghana now for the past, I'd say, two or three months, ever since a Ghanaian security service has launched what can easily be defined as the largest crackdown on illegal gold mining. Uh, we had a uh, PhD candidate from the University of Florida, uh, Yang Jiao, who came on a couple weeks ago on the show to kind of explain the mechanics and the politics behind this crackdown. What's happened in the past week is very interesting. There's been a reaffirmation at the political level from the, the governments of uh, in Accra and in Beijing that the, the political relationship is, is strong. This, uh, this is not going to affect the political relationship. In fact, uh, Beijing University's leading Sino- Sino-African scholar, Lian Shan, actually said that this is really a great thing that, can, that, that happened between the two countries. It highlights the fact that Ghana and China peacefully and quickly resolve this issue. They're able to put it in the proper context and move on. However, in the past week, what we have seen is what can easily be described as a mass exodus out of Ghana back to China. Uh, The Agence France Presse, AFP Newswire, is reporting that 4,500 Chinese have now left Ghana. Uh, that's a pretty large number, considering. Mm-hmm. And Cobus, they have also, you know, tightened uh, visa restrictions, making it almost impossible now. Uh, and that might be overstating a little bit, but at least extremely difficult for Ghanaians to go to China and for Chinese to go to Ghana. Bring us up to date a little bit on on the events that have happened this past week. Yeah, this is pretty funny actually to read. Um, as both governments are saying that they're as friendly with each other as they were before, both of them tightened their visa restrictions for each other's citizens. So, um, you know, so it's now really actually difficult to go to, to China if you're Ghanaian and to go to Ghana if you're Chinese. Um, and then at the same time, the Chinese government denied that this had anything to do with the, with the deportations and, you know, with the crackdown. Um, obviously, the Ghanaian press, all, you know, a lot of, a lot of journalists in, in Ghana were saying, oh, this is direct revenge, you know, for the crackdown. But the, the Chinese um, embassy denied this. But then the Ghanaian government actually said that their visa restrictions was to keep out illegal illegal miners. Um, which a little bit which is a little bit, you know, disingenuous, I think, because you know, kind of as um, as a lot of researchers have shown, um, a lot of people who are illegal miners, they they tend to um, you know they, you know, it's not because the visa visa laws are too lax that they, that they got the visa. It's because the the visa authorities are so corrupt. Um, you know, so so that it's a little, yeah. I, I think you know they're not completely hundred percent on the level there. I think. One of the comments that came up on our Facebook page, uh, Professor Adu, was the fact that you know this may represent a case study and a model for other uh, African governments who are struggling with Chinese immigration, illegal or otherwise. Uh, so comments came up saying, you know, I'm from Kenya and I hope that they do this. You know, we've seen Malawi trying to crack down, Namibia. Uh, so this has been an issue throughout throughout Africa, is the, how to deal with the, the estimated one to two million uh, Chinese migrants who now live on the continent and who may never go back. So I, I wonder, do you see this as something that will be confined to Ghana, or do you see other African governments uh, kind of saying, well, listen, Ghana was able to do it, so why don't we do it? And it, it scores good political points domestically, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, I, I think this, uh, this is, first of all, I'll, I'd say that this is uh, growing pains. This part of the growing pains uh, of any relationship in uh, a capitalist uh, system where you have labor moving freely, capital moving freely. So that is probably something that's bound to happen. Now, what I believe uh, is probably taking place is having uh, the the institutions being overwhelmed by this whole thing. So there is a need to have stronger institutions to deal with this, uh, political institutions and other 
uh, economic institutions. In this case, you can see lapses uh, all throughout uh, the system, uh, starting from the immigration services, and we've had several comments from the immigration officials coming out to say this. Now, what I find very unfortunate about this entire uh, situation is that it's almost uh, been picked on because of uh, how China, China's relationship in Africa is growing. Uh, I just returned from this area uh, in part of Ghana that also saw so much of these activities going on just this past uh, uh, July, uh, past June, yeah. And what you can see uh, is that you have several other nationals in there. You have Europeans. I talked to people from Ireland, people from Spain, who are all doing almost the same thing uh, Chinese are in there uh, doing, right? Granted that this is illegal and you have uh, several other uh, uh, people, locals uh, involved in this process. I believe it's for the government uh, to make sure that the institutions are doing what they're supposed to do. Stronger institutions uh, is what we need in this particular case to deal with this scenario rather than just uh, making uh, a political uh, attempt to somehow tighten uh, visa restrictions, uh, which would probably reciprocally uh, be done in the case uh, uh, for uh, as China is doing, as we can see. So I strongly believe that this is uh, such an unfortunate incident. It will probably lead to a much stronger relationship in, uh, between Ghana and China. But at the same time, uh, it will also uh, lead to some uh, very much painful uh, consequences where you might uh, hear people in uh, Ghana also commenting that uh, they are probably not being well taken care of by their government and then also vice versa uh, in terms of uh, the Chinese also saying that their people are not being taken care of. So we might have some unfortunate accounts coming from this, but it's rather unfortunate how it's just uh, turned out and uh, leading to what we currently see as uh, almost a political standoff. You know, I found it interesting that a lot of the, the comments uh, were to kick all the Chinese out. And, and you know, again, public opinion uh, across Africa was very, very supportive of the Ghanaian government. And, and one of my points that I came back with was, you know, and I, I attacked people directly on this. I said, oh, you know, it's funny because you sound like, uh, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen of the far right in <laughs> France. You sound like, you know, Pat Buchanan in the United States. You sound like some of the conservative anti-immigrant movements in South Africa who, who you know what, ironically say exactly the same thing about African migrants. I mean, if you live in Paris, you live in, a, in an environment where, you know, the, the body politic is not very friendly to, to African immigrants. And there is a very large constituent of, of French voters who would leave, love nothing more than to see uh, African immigrants be forcibly removed. So I found it ironic that a lot of people who, you know, Africa's been a country of emigrants for a very long time, forcibly or voluntarily. Uh, nonetheless, there are the, the African diaspora is, is one that's very rich. So again, this this is a this is, immigration is one of those things that goes both ways. I guess one of my my big question for you is this question of whether or not there's a discrepancy between what public opinion and public perception is of the Chinese, where it seems to me, and again, I, I have not been to Ghana, I, I don't, I just, I understand what I'm reading from the popular press that this crackdown fuels an anti-Chinese sentiment among people where they can blame the Chinese for all sorts of different things, bad products, taking their jobs, you know, illegal gold mining, environmental degradation. Uh, that frees the government up to not be accountable for it. But at the same time, the, the government is cozying up in a way with the, with the Chinese government for $3 billion of oil and gas loans. So is there a discrepancy between the political elites who see the value of the China relationship with Ghana and the masses who are increasingly becoming kind of tainted in that relationship because they believe they're getting the short end of the stick. Oh, yeah, obviously. That's uh, that's very much the case. I mean, you have uh, the difference between that, uh, the relationship that exists between the elites uh, and then that uh, of the relationship that exists between the masses and, and these Chinese investors. So whereas you have almost a complementary relationship between the uh, uh, the elites and, and these Chinese investors, you have one that is almost very competitive uh, when it comes to the masses. Uh, the problem is 
uh, in the case of Ghana, for instance, the NDC government uh, is walking a very fine line. Uh, for instance, using putting out this, these visa restrictions and all these attempts to kick out the Chinese is walking a very fine line in trying to stamp out any uh, uh, any form of anti-Chinese sentiments growing uh, uh, within the country, uh, which might which it sees as uh, something that can easily be turned into some form of political energy that can come against that particular party in the next election. So uh, it's trying very hard to just walk this very fine rope of uh, making sure that uh, it does something uh, that would deal with the situation, uh, but at the same time uh, uh, trying as much as possible to also appease the Chinese, given the fact that uh, they would still need these resources uh, that would be coming from China. So uh, it's it's a very delicate balance uh, that it's uh, currently working, but uh, would see the outcome. I, I strongly believe that stronger institutions and making the institutions do what they are supposed to do uh, would be much better than crying for kicking out uh, uh, all these foreigners, which probably would be so uh, easily... Uh, perceived or maybe degenerate into xenophobic uh, tendencies. Kobus, our, our podcast must sound to some people like a, a broken record because we keep coming back <laughs> over and over and over again to this question of governance. Uh, and then one of the other themes that we keep coming back to again is what I'm calling, you know, the fundamental undoing of the Chinese engagement in Africa, which is, and you've talked about this in the past, it's comfort and its desire to deal largely with elites and how it just sucks terribly at, at engaging the masses, either through media, either through community events. The Confucius Institutes, in my view, don't count because they're just so small. Um, but they, really, also, they also deal with elites. And they also they're do, the that's right. Institutes also deal with they're with their yeah. universities. Uh, so, you know, this is really the fundamental flaw with the Chinese in Africa, how they've got, as Professor Adu has pointed out in his piece, they've got a good story to tell. They're just not telling it. And in, in many cases, they have a good story to tell. But they're, they're, they're cozying up with elites right up and down the continent really seems to undo their ability to manage crises like this in the long-term future. So two themes that we heard from Professor Adu today. Yeah, I mean, you know, to a certain extent, there are attempts um, in China to to invest more in public diplomacy, um, you know, kind of, and which is obviously a strong idea that this is to go beyond you know, bilateral government relations um, to speak directly to the people. But I think it's difficult. You know, it's particularly difficult in Africa for the first, in the first place because of language. In the, to the second place, because a lot of public diplomacy depends on, on media access. Um, you know, it's, it's, you, you can't send a million Chinese ambassadors to one country, um, you know, kind of to, to go and engage people on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So what you tend to do is you tend to invest in media, which is what they doing heavily all over Africa. But the problem is, is that kind of media is still also an elite kind of thing. You know, kind of, um, you know, they because of the lack of, of a fine-grained um, terrestrial TV networks in Africa, they tend to be dominant on... Uh, to, to, they have to depend on, on satellite TV, which is expensive, or on the internet, which, which most Africans still don't have. So it, I think it's very difficult to do, um, you know, kind of in Africa, but also because Africans... And this might be a controversial thing to say, but I think Africans frequently don't particularly see the need... There isn't a kind of a guilt-based need to to appear cosmopolitan like you have in other countries. You know, kind of you. It's in, in other countries you can guilt people into being a little bit more cosmopolitan by simply implying that they actually that if they're not you know kind of paying attention to people of other cultures, they narrow-minded. In Africa, I think that doesn't work so much because people tend to have other preoccupations, um, and also Africans frequently you know it isn't as I've said before it isn't frequently isn't a culture that is very used to seeing itself as the agent of racism it mostly tends to think of itself as the victim of racism um, you know so you, I, I've, I know many Africans who don't think it's e even possible for Africans to be racist because they've always been the, vic the victims of racism so you know th there's a lot of conceptual barriers I think to this kind of one-on-one -on -one engagement and also the Chinese are just not very good at it you know kind of they tend to that they're, they're a government-centered culture, um, so I think I think it, it, 
it comes from both sides. Well, it's interesting because it seems to be the absolute inverse of the relationship that Africa is having with the United States, where a growing number of elites are becoming frustrated with you know what they see as American hegemonic kind of influence on the continent, drone bases, you know, not a lack of engagement, but yet public opinion polls right up and down the continent still give America a very favorable opinion on its soft power, you know, and so so it seems to be, uh, you know, a case of, of mirror between the Chinese who are favoring elites and the masses not really supporting them, and then the opposite with Americans. Uh, let's, um, let, let, let me pose, the, to wrap up this up, uh, Professor Adu, let me give you mm-hmm. the same question about Ghana that I gave you about uh, Angola, when you look five years down the road, where do you see this relationship going? Well, I, again, uh, since I'm an optimist in most cases, I would say uh, this relationship would definitely uh, be very important uh, uh, in Ghana's future in particular. I, I think it will probably uh, become much stronger as Ghana has become uh, an oil economy now or probably uh, uh, going, getting more uh, oil uh, resources, we would probably see China's interest deepen uh, in this particular part of Africa. And and most importantly, we would see an attempt by uh, the Ghanaian government uh, to embrace China very well, because uh, obviously uh, the option uh, of having resources uh, from China comes in uh, very handy uh, for any attempt to develop uh, further. So I see this relationship deepening. Uh, I know there might be growing pains, there might be frustrations, there might be uh, uh, parts that might sound almost uh, almost very difficult to uh, take in, but at some point, uh, things would probably level out once uh, the relationship has matured and gone through uh, lots of phases like for instance, what we see in the case of Angola and China, uh, they've been through uh, thick and thin, and most of these uh, African countries would also recognize uh, such paths. They would go through uh, difficult uh, parts of these relationships and then uh, at some point uh, get to a point where this relationship would probably serve uh, the need of the people. Kobus, it seems like Professor Edu is echoing your statements that you made in the Think Africa Press column that you wrote a couple weeks ago ahead of President Obama's visit to to the continent, where you talked about the fact that the reason we're seeing these tensions that exist on the ground is because there's friction, because the Chinese are actually there, where you're not seeing it with Americans, you're not seeing it with the French short of the French, of course, bombing Mali, every coast in Libya. Uh, but nonetheless, that these, this is in some ways a weird way of thinking of it, that it's a positive thing because these are the growing pains that will eventually lead to better mutual understanding uh, and, and a more positive outcome. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. You know, kind of the, this is the kind of sparks that you see from stones kind of rubbing off each other's sharp ends you know kind of there there's there's friction because they are busy developing ways to communicate um and that's never an easy thing to do um in the case of of the west there's just no one to communicate with you know kind of so so it so the, the relationship looks frictionless which of course it isn't wow well we're we're ending the today's show professor adu on, on such a positive note uh, again, I'm a little bit unfamiliar in this territory because there's oftentimes a lot of skepticism and cynicism. So uh, no doubt that uh, that there's going to be some reaction to, to your comments uh, on our Facebook page. Again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, Professor Adu, at the end of each show, what we do is we kind of go around the table and kind of if people want to follow what you're reading and what you're writing. Uh, are you on any various social media networks on Twitter or anywhere else that people can find some of your work? Yeah, currently, I what I do is I work with uh, most of uh, the media out there. I put out pieces that uh, gets picked up uh, by CNN and several other uh, media uh, around. But I am yet to, uh, strangely, it's very interesting, I'm yet to actually uh, get into Twitter and all these other uh, areas. But nonetheless, uh, you get me there. I mean, you will find most of my way going around. We hope to persuade you to do it. Uh, if you'd like to look up uh, Professor Adu, you can look him up on Google. Uh, Richard Adu, that's A-I-D-O-O. And uh, his article most recently is a foreign policy journal, China and Angola, the true dynamic duo in Sino-African relations. Kobus, if people want to follow you, where can they find you on the interweb? 
Um, I am busy on our Facebook page. I try and update every day. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me over on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China-Africa headlines almost every day. Uh, you can also follow all of our Facebook feeds, our Twitter feeds, our blog uh, on your Android or your Apple iOS phone. Uh, you can just look for this in the Google Play Store or the Apple iTunes store uh, so if you can listen to the podcast as well and of course we come back every Sunday with a new edition of the China and Africa podcast subscribe to us on iTunes you can follow us on SoundCloud look us up on the Blackberry network particularly in South Africa and of course we are also on Stitcher so until next week thank you so much for listening to another edition of the China in Africa podcast